0: all right everybody welcome back to the Bible study podcast I am Travis Polly, and here we have one goal learn to love like Jesus welcome back for the second part of this discussion hi Wes hey Travis how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm enjoying this conversation. Me too. It's a lot of fun. The first part was good.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, second. we're talking about an article written by Christianity Today, uh, published in May of this year, of 2021, and it's proof that political privilege is harmful for Christianity. Mm. So many Ps. Proof that political privilege is harmful for Christianity. <laughs> and we've been talking about these, these sort of paradoxes that, that exist in this statistical analysis of, of a couple hundred countries that were studied over the course of 10 years to see whether Christianity, and again, we're using Christianity very broadly, right. whether Christianity was increasing or decreasing, where the population of Christians, was that an increasing number? Were there more Christians or was it decreasing and there's less people identifying as Christians in a country And the the argument that this article is making, that that they believe that the statistical analysis is making, is that political privilege and political power actually works detrimentally against Christianity, that as the Church gains privilege by the state, and the state privileges Christianity, that there's a decrease in the number of Christians. And conversely, when there is... A, a free market of ideas, so to speak, when, when there is a pluralistic society where every idea has to compete on its own merits uh, to be accepted, then Christianity actually thrives in environments like that. And today we're going to talk about the third paradox, which is the paradox of persecution. Mm. Now, I think this one is less um, certain there's less certainty with this than there is the the paradox of pluralism. It does seem like in a pluralistic society where every idea has to compete on its own merits, um, Christianity is tends to grow in that environment. Of course it depends on other factors as well. It depends on, you know, are the Christians actually pre- preaching the gospel? Are they teaching people? Are they living Christianity out? It, right. it doesn't just automatically grow in a pluralistic society, but it, it's, probably going to to tend to grow more. Um, But there's also this paradox about persecution in that, in some cases, persecution strengthens the church. In some cases, Christianity tends to paradoxically grow when it's persecuted. Um, In the second century, Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and and I've often heard Christians... um, cite this idea and and acknowledge this idea that the church grows when it's persecuted again that's not always the case but there is sort of this paradox because you would think Christianity is going to be stomped out, or be even afraid of Christianity being stomped certainly out. certainly been
0: the motive several times.
1: Right, yeah. absolutely. There have definitely been people, and I'm sure there are people in our culture that would love nothing more sure. than for belief or faith, or especially Christian faith, to be eradicated. That they look at it as a virus, as a disease, and that they would love to eradicate christian faith in the in the world um but it's never worked it's i often picture like a a fire with like smoldering embers and somebody stomps on it and the more they stomp the more that it sort of kicks up those those uh pieces of of fire and they the the uh, sparks they jump out under their feet and then they they catch a piece of grass on fire, and then they catch a piece of grass, and then before you know it, there's this forest fire, huge fire that came from somebody trying to stomp out Christianity. And Of course, that's what we see in the first century, that Christianity was, for the most part, centralized in Jerusalem. That in spite of Jesus saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel, Mm. that there was a good amount of time... Where they hung out in Jerusalem and where, you know, it wasn't great. It wasn't like they were privileged by the, the, the Jewish powers or by the Roman powers, but they were pretty comfortable and sure. things were okay for a while And then when Saul began to, quote unquote, ravage the church and he was going house to house and arresting people, the church was scattered. And that's when Christianity began to spread. That's when it began to spread beyond the borders of Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, or Samaria to to all the parts of the earth. And that's what the book of Acts is about, is about how it it grows from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it happened, it was sparked by the catalyst for it was persecution, and that everywhere it went, it faced persecution, and instead of persecution stopping the growth of the Church, it actually sparked the growth of the Church. It actually contributed to the spread of Mm -hmm. Christianity. Now, there have been times where Christians have been persecuted And the church has all but been stomped out in a certain area. Um, But there's a lot of other exceptions or a a lot of other examples where even today, Christianity is growing, this spreading like wildfire, if I can continue that metaphor. Uh, It's spreading like wildfire in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian. Um, Iran is one example that this article gives. It says, despite the government threatening, pressuring, and coercing Christians, the church in Iran has become one of the fastest growing in the world in terms of conversion. While it is difficult to determine exactly how many Christians live in Iran, given that most of their faith, of course, is kept secret for fear of persecution, it's estimated and backed by survey data that there could be as many as, get this, a million Iranian believers. And that's just amazing to me that's wild. that in a country where it is illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity, that there could be a million believers of some sort in in the country of Iran, um, Afghanistan. And this was before what has happened recently and, right. and the U.S. Uh, military pulled out of there. Uh, but before that pull out, of course, it, it was illegal even then, uh, It says uh, open doors ranks the country of afghanistan as the second worst place to be a christian behind only north korea as in iran it is illegal in afghanistan to convert from islam and those who do so face imprisonment violence and even death Um, but again evidence indicates that christianity continues to grow and there is a huge underground church um, meaning you know persecuted and in hiding uh, that it continues to grow in Afghanistan. You brought up in the last last week's episode about the church in China, right. about how Christianity in China, in spite of intentional persecution, that they continue to grow, and there are statistics that say uh, that Protestant Christianity uh, in China um, has grown by a factor of twenty-three at least 5% of China's population of nearly 1.5 billion people now subscribes to Christianity. In fact, they've sort of looked at how fast Christianity is growing in China, and it says by 2030, China will have more Christians than any other country in the world. Wow. And by 2050, half of China could be Christian.
0: That's incredible. At, and that's
1: in a country where they are intentionally right. persecuting Christians. And so, again, there's a paradox. And, and as Christians, we... We tend to fear persecution. Of course, we. Of course, we do. Let me say that. Let me, let me just stop and say. Of course, we fear persecution. Yeah. Nobody wants to be hurt. Nobody wants to be ostracized. Nobody wants to be kicked out of their home. Nobody mm. desires this. Last uh, last week, you you rightfully said that that we don't want to be masochists. We right. don't want to say, oh, I sure hope that persecution comes my way. Um, we we don't want that at all. Um, but. I think we can tend to go to the opposite extreme. If one extreme is, please, God, let me be persecuted. If that's one extreme, that right. I don't know that anybody really falls into that category. They may talk a big game, but when it comes, I, I don't know that they would like it. But the other extreme is fearing persecution and, and mm-hmm. actively—and again, it, this is where last week's discussion comes in— that we were so afraid of persecution, that instead of relying on God to protect us from persecution, or better yet, to get us through persecution, even Mm -hmm. when we suffer it, to help us to be faithful through it, instead of relying on God, we rely on the power of the sword, we rely on the power of the state, we say, Rome, please come and save me, Caesar, please come and protect me, please provide for me, and we shift our allegiance to the state rather than to Jesus, uh, for providence, for protection, for providing. And, um, and and I think that it, it's helpful to know that sometimes one of the best things that can ever happen to the church is that it's persecuted. Um, and, and that's, that's a hard thing to even say out loud, but it's, it's true.
0: Well, and I think, you know, like you said, there's, there's kind of, there's two ends to that spectrum of, of, you know, desiring, you know, public and state and you know uh, support for christianity and then the other end of being persecuted uh, by the public by the mm-hmm. state uh, for being a christian and i think uh, it seems like what we're what we're kind of getting at is that the the challenge is not to you know not to advocate because i think what happens a lot when we end up advocating for the support mm-hmm. or demanding the support mm-hmm. Or what I was remembering from I've thought about this a lot in light of cancel culture mm-hmm. sort of uh, what I think of, and I could be wrong about this, so whatever my two cents is worth, but I, I think about when I was a kid, I would see a lot of like TV shows or a comedian or a movie or something would come out and you'd see groups of Christians like protesting or, right and again, it's not a political policy it's not like we' you know they're talking about abortion mm-hmm. it's not like. It, it's a movie, or right. it's a comedian, it's, right. it's a, it's, or it's something somebody said, and right. Christians are protesting and trying to boycott mm-hmm. it, or and make kind of a big show about that. I always thought that was kind of the precursor, ironically, to cancel culture. Right?
1: Oh, absolutely. We yeah. invented it. <laughs> it this <laughs> kind we're, of pure right.
0: Yeah. This kind of puritanical mindset. Yes. yes. That says, you know, I mean, I, I think of like the movie Footloose, where he's getting, trying to get the kids to stop dancing as I've never the preacher. Seen it. Well, it's the preacher who's oh, doing it. Oh, ironically. Right, the great John Lithgow. Um, but anyway, I, I think of that because it's like I think a lot of times we do that. We sort of call out like moral deficiencies, mm-hmm. and we may be spot on that it's, mm-hmm. it, that it's a moral deficiency. But we want to fix that, mm-hmm. as opposed to turning people to God, mm-hmm. which we forget sometimes that that's what's supposed to come first. That's right. That's you don't right. come to God with yes. everything figured out. Yes.
1: Um, Jesus changes us. We right. don't. It's not about behavior modification. It's about
0: conversion to Jesus. Because otherwise, we all got if we got to be perfect before we you know right. before we have a relationship with Christ here on earth, and right. we've all got a ways to go. Right. Um, and then I think you know. But but again, kind of ironically, what happens like with something like cancel culture or the, the, the kind of puritanical Christians taking down the, mm-hmm. the, the, the morally deficient, I think you end up, you're shining the light on the thing you're trying to destroy. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how many people I've been turned on to because they were canceled. Right. I was like, well, they didn't seem like that kind of person that they're saying they are. Yeah. Now I actually want to know what they were saying. I didn't yeah. really know anything about it. Yeah. And then I find out, oh, yeah, yeah this is, this oh, is, this man. is. Oh, man, that's
1: so good, yeah.
0: And so I think, like you said, about, mm-hmm. I, obviously, you know, I, I shudder to think of comparing cancel culture to real persecution like yeah. so many Christians are yeah. facing. But I think the mindset behind yes. it is very similar, yes. right, that I think persecution has tended to draw yes. eyes to, you know, when Rome is is crucifying Christians, and, and, you know, you think about the, the Caligula, and you think about Nero, mm-hmm. and um, Dom, D- Domitian, and, mm-hmm. and and you think about when they would use Christians as the scapegoat mm-hmm. for, a th- I mean, Nero directly yeah. for a crime that he committed, right. use Christians as the scapegoat, and then 6,000 Christians are crucified, it probably made a few people go, well, they don't seem like those yeah. type of people that right. the state is saying they are, mm-hmm. and then that I mean, you could totally see how that turns people to, well, now I want to know more about it. Right. And then you're in and yes. then you're, you start, you, you, you see the truth. And, yeah. And so I think in that way, that's what kind of came to mind when you said that it's, it's a, the paradox. That's
1: a really great point. I think you're exactly right. I think that we, we t- and, and I think it works from both sides. Right. So let me. Let's kind of explore that for a second, because I think that's a really spot-on analysis. Because I think, I think that is what happens. I think that when Christians are persecuted, I think there's this subconscious question: What's the threat here? Right. Like, why? Why are you so afraid of them? Like, what if, if Christianity is about the things Jesus says it's about forgiveness, right? Yeah, yeah. mercy. And, and, and Justin Martyr wrote in the second century, and he argued like, you should want Christians to be, you should want your citizens to be Christians. Like, right. we're the best. Like, yeah. we don't, like, the people that used to be our enemies, they're not our enemies anymore. We love right. them. Like, we we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We take care of our own. We take care of other people. We're not going to fight. We're going to pay our taxes. We're not going to be rebellious. We're not going to be seditious. We're, we're going to be your best citizens. Like, you really ought to love us. And, of course, they kill them. And so... There's this question, like, what's the threat here? Mm-hmm. And I mean, even even you think all the way back to when Jesus is born, and you think about Herod yeah. sending out troops to slaughter an entire village of babies. What's the threat here? Well, the threat is that if this is true, Jesus really is king of the world, this right. is a big deal. This changes everything and the powers that be the status quo is threatened by that mm-hmm. and I think that when it's persecuted it and especially when it's persecuted in such a way that it's obvious to bystanders that this is totally unprovoked that here are these Christians they really are loving people they really are kind people now if if there's any reason to say yeah they probably deserve that, then it doesn't work this way right. and that's what peter would say over and over again read first peter it's all about this idea like suffer for being christians but mm-hmm. don't suffer for being jerks he doesn't say jerks but <laughs> you know that's the idea like don't suffer for being an evil doer right. because then the bystanders will be like yeah they really are a bunch of troublemakers and they deserve whatever they get right. and christianity doesn't grow in that kind of an environment but in an environment where we're proclaiming the good news about Jesus, and we're living it out, and the world is threatened by it, and they're persecuting it. People are like, what's the big deal about this Christianity thing? Like, it seems like such a, a little thing. Why, why are they so threatened by it? Why are, it must be a big deal. And because mm-hmm. they make a—the world makes a big deal about trying to stomp it out. I mean, I think it's a great argument that why is it that most of the atheists want to pick on Christianity, but— not necessarily to the right. same degree Islam or Judaism they the or God Hinduism, not to right. I mean, right. there's there's tons of Hindus, but yet you you never I've never seen an atheist who's arguing against, and maybe right. that's because I don't live in India or whatever, but um you know, no, it's a great. they're point. arguing against Christianity yeah. because they see it as a threat. If they didn't, then they probably wouldn't fight so hard against it. But on the other hand, when when we are so afraid of persecution, and we're afraid it's going to happen to us, and we don't want to see happen here, what's happened in other places, that we preemptively strike against them, right? then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we actually end up, and we do the same thing, to your point about when we cancel people and we say well you're not allowed to discuss those ideas or you're not yeah. allowed to do this or this sexual activity is is wrong and you know we need to make you go away and make you be quiet it draws attention to it and people say in fact a lot of young people today are beginning to accept various sexual ethics i think in large part because they feel like they've been persecuted people in these Sexual Mm. groups or sexual minorities have been persecuted by Christians and out of empathy, a lot of young people and even Christian young people are empathizing and saying that's not fair the way they've been treated and they so empathize with them, they are attracted to their way of life or to their way of thinking or to their worldview and Christians have to realize that you become the very thing that you fear and when we fear. That, that fear, that fear of being persecuted, that fear of our voice being drowned out, that fear of not having power, that fear of not having privilege— it actually ends up exacerbating the problem and we end up creating the very situation we were afraid of. So we're afraid we're going to be persecuted and so we preemptively strike against the mm-hmm. people that we think are going to persecute us down the road someday. Right. And because we do that, they understandably strike back and then people feel sorry for the people we preemptively struck and then they begin to empathize with them and then they grow in power and strength and they strike us and then we strike back and then... It's this battle, and yeah. this has never been the way Jesus has taught us to to deal with these kinds of things.
0: Well, to your point about fear, you brought up on the la- on the first part of this discussion about how you know we 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 should understand as Christians were what that what we're fighting against. As Paul says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, yes. but against yes. principalities yes. and powers beyond this world yes. in, in the spiritual realm. And I think it, even if you know that, I was just thinking when you are talking about the sexual ethics part mm-hmm. of it, that we've maybe even created some of our own problems in yes. culture because we used it as a scapegoat. Yes. We we said that's that's where the spiritual warfare is yes. happening. It's like maybe, but it's happening in more ways than you can possibly imagine. Yes. So why pick one? That's why right. pick one? Yeah. To, They're to, the enemy. To, These people are the enemy. Again, yeah. to go and fix before anybody even comes to God, right. before anybody, you know, comes face to face with jesus right. and um
1: and we should uh, have been the ones to empathize and right. recognize that if somebody is sinning they're not our enemy they're the victim of sin they're mm-hmm. the prisoner of satan they're not satan they're not a demon no. they are a prisoner. if they really are in sin then they are a prisoner they are a victim and yes they contributed to it yes they made choices yes they have free will yes absolutely all true but Again, as you said, they're not our enemy. Satan is the enemy, and we ought to love and pity sounds so condescending, but but it's better than attacking yeah. and to say they're my enemy, they're not your enemy. Right. They are somebody to rescue and we have to reach out to them and and empathize with their situation and reach out to them in love because we too were in their shoes. And We so condescend and look down on people and say, well, my sin wasn't like their sin or my sin wasn't—yes, it was. It's exactly like theirs. And the sin you still struggle with is is exactly the same. And if not for the grace of God, you would be in the exact same situation. And so we have this tendency to look down on people and fight against people when we should be recognizing that that's not where the battle is, Mm -hmm. whether it's—I could list a whole bunch of groups of people, but right. I won't, but th- none of them, whoever, whatever group of people comes to your mind, they're not the enemy. The right. enemy are the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. That's the battle that we're fighting and that Jesus has already won. And as many as we can snatch from the fire, we ought to do that in love. And so, in then when we come back from the break, I want to look through and talk about in that light, why does Jesus, Why are the instructions about how to deal with persecution so important? And why does persecution handled rightly lead to church growth? I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com audible. That's radicallychristian.com audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com audible. Now back to the Bible study. Okay, so we were talking about the paradox of persecution and how Christianity sometimes, and I think we always have to attach that caveat, sometimes grows paradoxically in places where the government is trying to stomp it out. And that was true in the first century, it's true in the 21st century, and it has been true in every century that I'm aware of. Um, but, But how we respond to persecution is so powerful. And I think that this has everything to do with why it grows and when it grows and how it grows. Um, I think about passages like the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, how Jesus ends the Beatitudes in verse 11. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's hard for me to even read those words to say blessed and rejoice and be glad because we do a lot of rejoicing and have a lot of gladness and feel a lot of blessedness because we don't find ourselves in those situations. Right. We, all, we have this tendency all the time to say we are so blessed to live in a country where we have this freedom, where we can worship, where we can do all of these things and Jesus never says that. He never says blessed are the comfortable. He never says blessed are the privileged. He never says blessed are those who are not persecuted. He always says the opposite. And and so I mean it's just I think we have to wrestle with this and we have to say number 1 this is what Jesus says to our brothers and sisters because we do have However, you think about how wi- widely or narrowly you think about Christianity, mm. we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Like, we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are being persecuted right now because of. Jesus, not persecuted the way we tend to think about persecuted. Like, my friend won't talk to me anymore because I won't drink with him or whatever. Like, that's not really persecution. Persecution right. is being thrown in a hole, being having your hands cut off, being killed because you're a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we have brothers and sisters right now that are enduring that. And this is what Jesus says to them. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, but how do we think about it? Like, mm-hmm. how... How do we that are in a country where it may not be state-sponsored churches—obviously, we've talked about how that can be detrimental—but we're sort of somewhere in between and where we do enjoy a lot of privilege, where we do enjoy a lot of power, and enjoy might be a good word. We enjoy it. Um, But I think we have to acknowledge that Jesus doesn't want us to think this is the blessed state. Oh, sure. And, yeah. and by state, I mean existence. This isn't the blessed condition. In fact, if anything, it is the spiritually dangerous state. Hmm. It is a state in which we have to recognize the inherent dangers and difficulties that come along with this and to say, I'm not wishing for or wanting or desiring or praying for persecution, but because I'm not experiencing it, at least to that degree— I need to be very careful because I am in a spiritually detrimental state that l- l- being lethargic, excuse me, being lethargic is incredibly common in this kind of a condition.
0: Yeah, you know, it just popped into my head and it's not because I'm looking at one of your commentaries on the book of Job, but the book of Job popped into my head. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about in that, you know, in that early part of Job when he's, I mean, talk about persecution he's yeah. about to face yeah. from Satan right. himself. Yeah. Um, but when when Satan comes to God and he's, you know, when he's saying, you know, well, Job only serves you because he's protected. But one, uh, one of the key points, I think, about Job is that mm. Job wasn't a bad guy who goes through pain and then finds God. Mm-hmm. Job was a good guy yeah. who had it made, you yeah. know, the, for the first several verses are all about what he had yeah. and about all the, the riches and how, you know, he would he would pray for his kids uh, just in case mm, they yeah. were sinning. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's yeah. how righteous he was, you know, yeah. just, just in case. And, you know, even the things that he wasn't aware of. And then you see God talking with Satan in the courts of heaven and Satan saying, well, that's just because he's, you know, and then we get to see throughout that book that he, you know, no, he didn't just follow God because, yeah. you know, because God protected him that that it was it was able to withstand. But I think one of the one of the things that jumped out at me, based on what we're talking about, is. Job followed God in his time of of privilege yes. of of comfort. Yes, and so that you can you know I, I, the point that you can be comfortable mm-hmm. and not lethargic. Yeah, because it, it and you know. I don't, this may be a stretch, but I think of Jesus saying, and I think it kind of applies. Jesus saying, you know, it's harder for for a camel to get through the eye of the needle right. for yes. than for a rich yes. person to get to heaven. Yes, because your needs aren't that obvious. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you, you're gonna you you may have to actually search for what you need. Yeah, and I think, man, when I look at our culture today, when I look at at my life and the things I care about. That's definitely been true. Yeah. That it, it takes a little bit to get to the bottom of things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe it's not worse or better, but it's it's different, mm-hmm. and it's a different struggle than, you know, I was thinking about, I mean, some of the times where I felt closest to God were when things were going really badly, mm-hmm. because that's all I had mm-hmm. to fall back on. That's mm-hmm. all I had to rely on. And it, it can be harder mm-hmm. when things are going super well. Yeah. And... You know, you have, like we've been talking about, distractions. You have idols that you can mm-hmm. give your allegiance to mm-hmm. that aren't God yeah. uh, with seemingly minimal consequences, at least yeah. in the moment. So
1: so many great things. I, I want to spin off of several of the things that you said. So many great points that, that Job, that what's so interesting about the book is that Satan assumes mm-hmm. that Job is going to curse God as soon as all of his stuff is gone. Right. And I think he assumes that because ninety nine point nine percent of the times he would be right. Right. Like Job was an exception. He'd
0: probably been right about that before. Right,
1: yeah. exactly. Because that's that's the way almost everybody is almost everybody uses God as a means to an end. And the end is comfort. The end is ease. The end is riches. The end is privilege. The end is all of these things that so many of us desire and chase after and want. And, and most people, including Job's friends, it seems used God as a means to an end. And they were religious, but only because their religiosity tended to pay off that when they did good stuff, good things happened to them. So, God wasn't the end that they were seeking. The end was comfort and prestige and power, and they were just using God as a means to the end. God was Mm -hmm. a tool that they were using. 99% of the time, that's true. Comfortable, rich people, as soon as their stuff is gone, they're out. And Satan knew that, and God said, that's what makes Job so different. That's Mm -hmm. what makes Job the exception rather than the rule. And, and then we see Job live through this. And I think Job is a perfect picture of Israel, of mm. how the, the remnant of Israel right. continue to be faithful to God through the midst of their suffering and mm. how it's a picture of, of always the faithful, including what Jesus would go through, suffering even though it was not his fault, and what all of us go through and that there will come this period of suffering and trial and hardship. And what you do then... It, it reveals whether or not what you were doing earlier was real or not. And, and so that, that time of riches, that time of privilege, that time of comfort, what were you doing then? And are you really seeking God? And it seems like Job, I think it's a great example that you brought up because Job was, he was seeking God. He was relying on God. What an amazing person to rely on God when things are good. He was like, I'm going to make sacrifices for my children just in case maybe one of them might. I don't know. They could. It's possible. Mess up and sin against you. And so I'm going to make just to cover my bases, he sought God, he wanted what was best, and he was generous, he was a doer of justice, he was a righteous person, he thought about other people, he cared for his community. So all of these things were true about Job, not just because he wanted God's protection and God's providence, but because he really loved God, and he was yeah. committed to God, even when those those privileges weren't there. And so yeah. for us, that means if you're in a season of privilege, and For the last couple hundred years, Christians in the West have had a season of privilege. And do we hold on to that with tenacity and seek that as if that was the end in and of itself? Do we put our hopes—this is what Paul tells Timothy—he was Timothy or Titus—he says, tell those who are rich not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Mm -hmm. So there's the temptation to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And that's what rich privileged people tend to do is we tend to say, well, I'm going to hold on to this, and this is my hope, and this is my confidence, and I hope nothing happens to it, and I'm so blessed to have all of this stuff. And it's such a precarious situation, and that sometimes we don't even recognize how precarious our situation is. And, and we, we need to. We need to recognize that all of this could be gone like that, mm-hmm. and that that's okay. And we still have Jesus, and Jesus is all we need. Sometimes that's a mantra that my family will say, when we're experiencing something nice, or we get something new, a new car, new house, new mm-hmm. furniture, we'll say, this is nice, this is fun, but we have Jesus, and Jesus is all we need. I like that. And yeah. it's this reminder that this thing, it could be gone tomorrow. This mm-hmm. comfort, it could be gone tomorrow. This experience, it could be gone tomorrow. But Jesus won't be gone tomorrow, and Jesus is all we need. And, and that's what Paul says in Philippians 4. He's in prison, and he says, I've learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, mm. both in plenty, abundance, and in want, in need. And the secret is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mm. But sometimes we don't think there's a secret to having plenty, and there is. The secret is it's Christ who strengthens you, right. whatever you have. And so it's this it's this conscience, this conscious, in, intentional reliance and dependence on Jesus, even in the good times, this generosity of spirit, this generosity with our stuff, giving it away. And the irony is that when we hold on to things, mm-hmm. uh, there was a song we sang when we were a little, uh, love is like a lucky penny, hold it tight and you won't have any, give it away and you'll mm-hmm. have plenty. You'll wind up having more. I can't believe I remember that, but, wow. uh, but yeah, That's so you good. hold it tight. Yeah. And you end up opening your hand and you've got nothing, Hmm. but you give it away and you'll have plenty. Um, And that's that's what it looks like to follow Jesus is the more we hold on to this privilege, the more we hold on to our power, the more we hold on to our comfort, the more of a self-defeating prophecy that we're part of, and we end up losing and squandering all of it. But if we focus all of our attention on, I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor, including my enemy who might persecute me as myself. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Hmm. Then Jesus takes care of us. And Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount, again, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Don't worry about these things. The Gentiles seek after these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so again, and I've said this so many times over the last year and a half, fearing religious persecution is against my religion. Mm. (laughs) It is against our religion to fear religious persecution, Mm. to live in fear and anxiety that we are being persecuted or that we will be persecuted. Jesus specifically tells us not to do that. There's a lot of stuff that's debatable. That one's not like, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Uh, First Peter. Again, I love first Peter because it's all about this subject. He's writing to Christians, they're not dying for their faith, but they're sure having a hard time. They're suffering. And he says, this is First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God, God's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of you and he's going to take care of them. He's going to take care of the evildoer. He says, therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. (laughs) And that's it. That's it. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. That's what Job did when things were good and when things were bad. He entrusted his soul to a faithful creator and he did good. That's what Jesus did. When times were good and times were bad, entrust your soul to faithful creator and do good. That's what we're supposed to do. Entrust ourselves to God. Say, if I have food to eat, it's because God gave it to me. If I have comfort, God gave it to me. If I have persecution, it's God, God's will that I suffer. And do good. Just do good. But we're so afraid. We're so afraid we're going to be persecuted yeah. that we end up doing wrong. And in our doing wrong, we suffer persecution, but we are persecuted as wrongdoers and not as Christians, yeah. and and we end up, it becomes this cycle of striking back and forth and back and forth, and, and this is why I think today in the West, especially in the United States, why we're not growing the way that we're supposed to grow and inspiring the people we're supposed to inspire and attract, the, not everybody's gonna follow Jesus. Not everybody's gonna wanna listen to the Gospel. But the only way they are going to listen to the true gospel of Jesus is if we proclaim it and we live it. And this hmm. is what it looks like to live it, to rejoice when someone when we suffer for the name and to do good, even when it means suffering for it.
0: Well, I have to think that the way to sort of prepare our minds and you know and to, to rely on Christ's strength as you as you talked about with Paul talking about this exact topic in Philippians four, uh, the way, I mean, one of the greatest antidotes to this, uh, this, I, this form of idolatry of, of trusting in safety and comfort mm-hmm. and wanting to protect that at all costs or, or maybe hoping for that in the, in the midst of persecution mm-hmm. instead of hoping for, and this is what I'm thinking, the eternal mindset, yeah. because whether things are going well or whether things are going poorly the point is that God's going to set it all right. That's right. That this is not the end. Yes. That it's not just some futile, you know, you know, I, like I, I now I can't remember who says it, but in the New Testament it talks about if this isn't true, then we're to be pitied above everybody. Yes. First Corinthians
1: fifteen. Right. Yes. yes.
0: But if it is, then, yes. then you don't have to worry. Yes. You're released yes. from having to worry about every little thing that goes wrong or goes right. Yes. I never thought when you talked about Jesus and in, in, uh, what he says in Sermon on the Mount Matthew 6 about don't worry about what you're going to wear or mm-hmm. what you're going to eat. I never thought about how... I, I've thought about that in times where I was worried, <laughs> <laughs> but I've never thought of... Like, because, like, I don't know where my next meal is coming from or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I've never thought about it as, well, don't worry about it when you have abundance. Yes. Don't worry about because, I mean... Again, like what we've been talking about—the distractions that we have in a in a in a place of comfort—is yes. you can spend a lot of time planning your day, yes, I- investing your time and your resources into things that you know maybe once in a while it's good, mm. but on a daily basis mm-hmm. it can consume you, yes. and it can you know yeah, I heard somebody say you know it's not it's not so clear that your possessions that you own your possessions or that they own you. That's right. You know, because they demand your time. Yeah. And what are they ultimately what are they demanding your time away from? Yeah. From Christ, yeah. from growing closer and from having this eternal mindset, which mm-hmm. again, I have to think that is mm-hmm. at least the start mm-hmm. to prepping ourselves for whether I'm whether I'm comfortable and safe mm-hmm. or whether I'm persecuted mm-hmm. and uncomfortable, yeah. then I'm going to trust in in yeah. God.
1: I love that you brought that up because that's exactly right. When we listen to what Peter says to these yeah. Christians that are suffering, he, he doesn't say rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when the suffering ends. Right. He says that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Mm. That's yeah, the hope. So, that's so different. That's, it is so different. Yeah. And that's what, you know, we tend to, when we think about persecution and we think about the persecuted church, we tend to pray for the end of persecution. Mm -hmm. Like, please help, you know, troops to come in and stop the persecution or please help the right government to come into place so that the persecution is stopped or please help this to happen. Some, some answer to stop the persecution and that's not what the early church prayed for. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for faithfulness. They prayed for long suffering, that they would be able to stand the test, so that in the end, when Jesus comes, then they could stand before Jesus as faithful, hmm. not for human justice to come, but for God's justice to come. In fact, I I think that's what Jesus means in the Beatitudes when he says, he says that um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, mm. for the righteousness of God. Righteousness is another way of saying justice, for God's justice. For
0: God to come and make it
1: Hunger right. and thirst
0: for mm. the justice of I God. I didn't know that.
1: that. That when God's justice is revealed, yeah. then you will find yourself blessed. And that's why we can be meek. That's why we can be meek. That's why we can mourn. That's why we can hunger and thirst now because we know that it will be rewarded. We know that it will be paid off. We know that when his glory is revealed, we will be glorified with him. We will share in the glory of Jesus if we share in his sufferings. This is all throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament talks about nothing else, it talks about persecution and how to handle it. And it's to handle it this way with this eye to the future that's not like well we don't really care about the things that happen on the earth this is just a proving ground for later on no no no. it's not to say that like this stuff doesn't matter Mm -hmm. it matters Mm -hmm. it matters what's happening because because jesus is going to come and his righteousness his justice is going to be revealed which means he will set everything right Mm -hmm. there isn't a wrong that's been committed That won't be undone there isn't a a murder that has taken place that will that the guy got away with it there is no injustice that won't be overturned every injustice will come to justice every unrighteousness will be will be repaired and fixed god is going to fix all things and the righteous those who hope and trust in the lord who hunger and thirst for his justice they will be rewarded and so we we endure, and that's the key word here, we endure persecution. We don't fear persecution. We endure persecution. We don't pray for persecution. We don't desire persecution. We endure persecution because we have an eye to the day when his glory is revealed. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Pauly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.